Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Big Hero 6. This is the first test of my robotics project. Stop, 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 stop. The seventh test. This is Tadashi, my older brother. 33rd test. Wait, 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 stop. This is the 84th test. Hello, I am Baymax. You worked! Oh, this is amazing! You wanted to help a lot of people. People keep saying Tadashi's not really gone. As long as we remember him. Hello, I am Baymax. Tadashi programmed me to heal the sick and injured. You will be alright. There, there. I would like to help. Scan complete. You are experiencing mood swings. Diagnosis? Puberty. Whoa, what? It's like spooning a warm marshmallow. Uh. Reports are flooding in about a major catastrophe. We're under attack from a super villain, people! Come on, go, 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 go! I am not fast. Yeah, no kidding! So a man in a kabuki mask attacked you in balloon man. We can't go against that guy. We're nerds. Trust me, I know about robotics. We can be way more. Anybody else's suit riding up on him? Come on. Kick it down. Just punch it. Why is Baymax wearing carbon fiber underpants? This may undermine my non-threatening huggable design. He's glorious. On top of the world. I wasn't terrified of heights. I'd probably love this. But I'm terrified of heights, so I don't love it. What's wrong with you? Low battery. Harry, baby. That was amazing. You gave me a heart attack. Clear. Stop, stop, stop. It's just an expression. What do you say, buddy? Whee! Okay, let's get you back in your luggage. Welcome back to our Disney shows. And the special guest for all of the Disney shows has been Mr. Daniel Floyd of New Frame Plus. Hello, Daniel. Hello. And back on the show after Mary Poppins and Sing Street from the Rainbow Connection podcast, it's Mackenzie Easton. Hello. Nice to be back. A year after Frozen, Disney followed up in late 2014 with its first animated adaptation of a Marvel comic book. This one, unlike the Silver Age Lee Kirby Ditko mainstays of the 1960s, was created in 1998, around about the time that Marvel were going through one of their roughest patches in their history. You know the time that they had to auction off the doors to their offices? That time? Sunfire and Big Hero 6 was their first appearance, incorporating several X-Men characters in the 616 continuity. Baymax back then looked for all the world like one of the hunters in Resident Evil, or if you're a Marvel fan, Chode. The comic was created by Man of Action, which is a collective of writers, including Joe Kelly, who was the writer behind the comic book of I Kill Giants, which was adapted into one of the best unnoticed films of last year, along with Duncan Rolio, Stephen T. Siegel, 
and Joe Casey. Uh, these guys were responsible for the wildly successful cartoon and toy lines of Ben 10 and Generator Rex, and they were the men that got handed one of the best Marvel animated series ever, Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes, midway through season two after the Disney purchase of Marvel, and they rushed it through its worst episodes into an anticlimactic finale, and thence onward to Avengers Assemble, the utterly rubbish Avengers cartoon. Man of Action had been responsible for some things that became fantastic, and some things that were less than desirable, at least to me. This following description of the original Big Hero 6 comic is pretty crazy. In the original comics, the Japanese government needed a team of state-sanctioned superheroes, kind of like Alpha Flight of the Canadian X-Men, uh, Silver Samurai, a freelance ronin and Wolverine villain, who you might remember from the Wolverine movie, was appointed as the team's field commander, secret agent Honey Lemon, inventor of the nanotechnology-based power purse from which she can access any object, also a great... What? What was that? Is that Hermione's... Yeah, unacceptable extension charm, <laughs> which itself is Mary Poppins' bag. Uh, the tough or the ta- bag of holding. Of course, yeah. The tough-talking Gogo Tamago, uh, able to transubstantiate her body into a fiery force blast by uttering her code name. All right, was released from prison <laughs> uh, on the condition that she serve on the team. So kind of, I'm getting a, a little bit of a Suicide, suicide Squad, squad Task Force yeah. X. And at the time in the 90s, they were doing the same thing with X Factor. They made Sabretooth like, work on the side of the good guys, but he had like a bomb collar around his neck. They do that quite a lot. It was like the 90s was kind of edgy. Yeah, so edgy. Can't wait for the Spawn movie. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Government scientists then identified 13-year-old boy genius Hiro Takachiho as a potential operative. Unimpressed with the Silver Surfer, Hiro declines joining the team until... Samurai. What did I say, Surfer? I knew I was going to say Surfer when I typed that. (laughs) Unimpressed with the Silver Samurai, Hiro declines joining the team until... Oh, shit, I forgot this bit. His mother is kidnapped by the Everwraith the astral embodiment of all those killed in the 1945 nuclear attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm. You may put your palms to your foreheads now. Hero oh, create. boy. Yeah. Why didn't Disney want to touch that one? Hero, <laughs> Hero creates Baymax, a synthetic bodyguard capable of transforming into a dragon using the brain engrams of his dead father. Yes, you're thinking a spider. That, no, that's a Scientology thing. Oh, really? Brain engrams. Oh, no. Cool. This yeah. needed a serious <laughs> overhaul, folks. With Brain Bay- engrams are what you have to get rid of to go clear. Oh, seriously? Okay. With yeah. Baymax, Hero reluctantly joins forces with the Big Hero 6 to prevent the Ever-Wraith from slaughtering millions in downtown Tokyo. What you're describing is Godzilla, but more on the nose. <laughs> During the battle, Big Hero 6 is joined by Sunfire Japan's premier superhero who is a mutant with the ability to heat matter into plasma. Fans of uh, X-Men will know that he joined the team briefly during the giant size X-Men uh, Claremont New Beginning in the 70s. Mm, he decided not to stay because he thought Japan needed him more than America, didn't he? Understandable. Uh, they defeat the Everwraith, but the comic did not succeed in becoming an ongoing series, and the few limited series it had over the past 20 years are hard to get hold of. And with the movie being the abiding version now if there is anything ongoing you can almost certainly expect that these versions will paste over the originals and uh, I, I think there may be going to be some fans of the original book all, all six of them out there who will be sad about that but uh, it, 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 I suppose it's the same way as that the original Guardians of the Galaxy books although those were a lot more popular now you'd be foolish not to 
make the Guardians feel like the movie Guardians. I'd almost love to hear a like a diehard Big Hero Six comic fan like try to make a pitch for why the film failed to capture something that the comics had. Not not because I necessarily believe them. I'd just be really interested in hearing that particular impassioned speech. Hmm. Uh, and as uh, Jordan Zakarin points out, uh, in the comics, it's a team of real heroes brought together by the Japanese government. So they're already existing kind of badasses. Hero is a member. He joins hesitantly, but he's certainly not the leader. The team in Disney's version of events is a scrappy group of students who come together out of necessity. As the young leader in the film, Hero builds all of their weapons and uniforms based on their personalities and talents, kind of like the way that Tony Stark in the movies kitted out all the Avengers with new tech, apart from Thor, like uh, Peter's brand new Spidey suits, Cap's returning magnetic shield setup in Age of Ultron, swiftly abandoned for old-fashioned leather straps in Civil War, I might add. Uh, and I'm going to guess some of Natasha's gadgets, like the, the taser thingies, and the countermeasures for the Hulk, including the Hulkbuster, Veronica, and those stretch-and-shrink pants. You know, he's like special trousers. Uh, they they use Hero's robotic skills in the comics for sure, but they certainly don't need him for their powers. So Big Hero 6 was uh, drafted to Don Hall, uh, who was the co-director of Winnie the Pooh, and Chris Williams, the co-director of Bolt. And both of these men, as a team... Co-co-co-directed Moana along with uh, John Musker and Ron Clements. Is that a thing now, Dan, that, that especially in more modern day era, you got two-person directorial teams? That thing seems to be, like, Disney has liked doing that a lot. Yeah. Uh, just for a long while. Like it's a, And I don't know if it's a thing where they feel that like it just kept on happening organically or if they felt that it really was beneficial to have two direct like a uh, co-directors just always working together just splitting dividing the work up bringing both of their own skills and strengths to it it hmm. seems to have been very successful for them so i'm i'm not surprised like and i didn't know until looking up like uh reading this wiki stuff that uh moana had two co- pairs of co-directors involved and i'm going to have to explore that story some more it's speculation more than anything else but could this be to do with the action set piece process which is a staple of how films big budget films are made these days so you mean so, like well you mean one... sort of like like the b crew that's kind of go, filming a lot of the action work while the like mm. main director yeah. is sort of a yeah, yeah it could be similar to that i think it in a similar way like there's just a, a director on these films is needed just in five places at once all the time all the departments are wanting to get their eyes on stuff so i think if nothing else just having two pairs of eyes who are like sharing a pretty similar directorial vision who can be looking at more things at once is extremely beneficial. And I mean, those, the people behind those two pairs of eyes do also have their own just like creative strengths that they're able to bring to each one of these things. And if they're, if they work well together, then it seems like a, a pretty ideal way to work. The way movie making is going at the moment that we're kind of entering a bit of a two tier system where you have a directorial team that does the big budget stuff simply because one person cannot pull all those strings at once. And then Mm. your authorial single person who comes with the idea and the vision and makes it entirely their own is going to become much more the, the state of things for the lower budget indie end movies. It kind of seems that way to me too. I don't know enough to be able to make, 
to declare that as fact, but it's it feels true to me also. Moana specifically, it might also be partially that they wanted to have their directors that are going to continue going on for longer work with their standbys. Yeah, That's a thing that I know Pixar has done in the past where they have newer, not necessarily completely fresh directors working with the old guard so that they get trained up a little bit better because they had a few disastrous turns where a bunch of new people came in and didn't know what they were doing. Yeah, almost almost like That's an true. apprenticeship. Yeah. And that is definitely something so Disney. So with Moana, but even it makes with... sense that you'd grab people who know what they're doing, but maybe can learn. Yeah, like, even with this one, like uh, Mark Hen is credited uh, on in Big Hero 6. And I don't know if he was actually doing any 2D animation on the film. I think he was just there as a guiding hand for the animators in a similar way. Like he wasn't an animation lead like Glenn Keane was on Tangled, but I think he was still meant to be there in a similar capacity as an advisory role to the 3D animation team. So they, Disney really does want to take as much advantage of the like the fact that these old masters are still around and can lend their expertise to the next generation of, uh, of their filmmakers and animators that Disney's definitely trying to make the most of that, which is good. I'm glad they are. I was going to cite uh, Mosca and Clements in uh, uh, The Great Mouse Detective because like, in my head I was like, well, Wolfgang Ratherman pretty much did everything from the 60s all the way through to the early 80s. And then it was John Musker and Ron Clements for The Little Mermaid and Aladdin and Kirk Wise and Gary Truesdale for Beauty and the Beast and The Hunchback of Notre Dame. But then if you start looking back on this list, you get, like, Wolfgang Reitherman did quite a few on his own, and then you get back to the era, the era when Walt was still alive, and you've got three-man teams, and you keep going back and back and back. And Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, David Hand, supervising director, Pierce Pierce, William Cottrell, Laura Moray, Wilfred Jackson, Ben Sharpstein, they have been multi-handing this since day one. When it drops down to a single director, is that when it starts getting bad? Uh, three Caballeros, yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, fun and Francis. I mean, no, honestly, because Wolfgang Ratherman did did all of the um, like uh, Xerox type yeah, ones. But look, there you see, even they've got a supervising director and then sequence directors. So for Sleeping it's, Beauty, yeah, yeah, it's it's team jobs by the yeah. looks of things. I think That's just that, that that there was an era when Disney were kind of underperforming. But if you if you look at the the you know Sword and Stone, Jungle Book, Aristocats, Robin Hood, Winnie the Pooh, although he also had John Lounsbury, and that's when they switched back to at least yeah. two man teams. There was so there was there was that period there just after Wolf's, Walt's death when it was just like give it to Wolfgang every single time. Okay, and, and Pixar has been doing single directors almost exclusively. Yeah. Which is interesting. Yeah, I, th- that's, uh, I think they've uh, wanted to get like a, a, a purity of vision, you know, since uh, um, day one with them. And, and again, that their way of doing things has paid off. So it, it seems like the, the lessons that they learned um, when Disney was sort of, you know, starting to flounder were not too many directors. It was, uh, it was always cases of like, we're spending too much money on brand new animation and we need to rethink this. Anyway. Pixar might be changing gears though, because if I'm not if I'm not wrong, I think Coco had two directors, and I know they had a lot of switching of directors in some more recent films. Yeah, like definitely had a lot the of good dinosaur. Switching. Yeah, yeah. Usually during like when they're wanting to when they feel like the film's not working, they uh, do some swapping. But yeah, it looks like uh, Coco had. I see two names. So oh really? Yeah. I've got Lee Unkrich, yeah. and that's it. Uh, Lee Unkrich is the one that I thought of. Like maybe I'm just. Uh, Directed by Lee Unkrich. I see an Adrian Molina, but I don't know if that's... Hmm. Yeah. 
Adrian Maloney, who, who, who I was thinking of, but okay. I think they mostly brought him on for the cultural elements. Gotcha. Oh, uh, okay. okay. He did the screenplay by the looks of yeah. things. Oh, okay. This is, however, further uh, evidence of the homogenization between Disney and Pixar, because Sharon asked me, as we were starting, firing up Big Hero 6 earlier today, is this one, is this Pixar one Disney or, or Pixar? Yeah. Again, and you asked me that the other yeah. day when we were watching what? I think I asked you when you did the quick review for Wreck-It Ralph 2. Yeah. Whether it was Disney or Pixar. But I, I did speculate, and I don't know whether this is entirely coincidental, but... It almost seems as though the point at which the two started to overlap was at a stage where it was becoming a bit easy to classify Disney as for girls and Pixar as for boys, and that they maybe wanted to shake that up a little bit. By putting Brave out as... So they put Brave out as Pixar and Ralph out as Disney. Mm -hmm. And then... There's been more overlap since then. Yeah. Ta-da! It's pretty great, huh? So pink. Here's the best part. Whoa. I know, right? <laughs> Chemical metal embrittlement. Not bad, honey lemon. Honey lemon? Go-go? Wasabi? I spilled wasabi on my shirt one time, people! One time! Fred is the one who comes up with the nicknames. Uh, who's Fred? This guy, right here! Ah! Uh, uh, don't be alarmed. It is just a suit. This is not my real face and body. The name's Fred. School mascot by day, but by night... <laughs> I am also a school mascot. So, what's your major? No, 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 I'm not a student. But I am a major science enthusiast. I've been trying to get Honey to develop a formula that can turn me into a fire-breathing lizard at will. But she says that's not science. Let's talk about Big Hero 6. And the first thing that uh, uh, strikes you when you watch the film is San Francisco as a created environment for everything to take place in. Uh, the original comic, it was just in Tokyo. And so this uh, homogenization, well, homogenized. So this, what would the best word be? Blending. Cocktail mm. of uh, Tokyo and San Francisco, which Lyra guessed, didn't she? She did. Without yeah. seeing she, the name of it. She picked out that it was Tokyo and San Francisco. Yeah. I mean, San Francisco is a bit obvious because they have the bridge, but then they've stylized it to look like Japanese architecture, yeah. So, which is quite a nifty way of doing it. But honestly, I think one of the best things about that aesthetic choice is that it futurizes your story straight away. Hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the production design of San Francisco is honestly one of my favorite things about this movie. The city feels really... It's not anything that actually exists, but it feels very lived in, and it looks very solid for something that could have come off as, let's put a Japanese coat of paint on San Francisco. Yeah. It doesn't look like that, no. I mean, which one of the, is impressive. One of the things that I love most about it is actually most prominent on the college campus when they're outside. It's a a style of environment that I've only really seen in Singapore, which is this really engaging blend of futuristic tech and a very natural environment. Cultivated parkland, yes, but natural nonetheless. Lots of grass, lots of flowers, trees in the background. And it gives this sense of, A, a future that I would like to live in, Mm -hmm. as opposed to, it's dystopian and everything's made of concrete, and B, an environment that is 
kind of bedded in. This isn't one that's just been created. It's had time to grow flowers and grass and trees. Right. It seems like an alternate uh, uh, reality or an alternate version of Earth where this city was made as a fusion of uh, more of a global vision of, uh, of East and West. I believe that is what the Disney like creative said when the movie was like being announced and pushed was that it was like an alternate universe where there was more Japanese immigration to San Francisco and they just adopted it better. And it was more like cohesive and yeah, it does feel like it's been there that it's an established thing that everybody's comfortable in it. Also, it's a future I'd like to live in because it seems to have pretty decent public transport. Yes. (laughs) Very little litter as well. Mm, Absolutely. People who care about the environment that they're living in. Mm. And they're very uh, scientifically progressive. Mm. There's this massive institute right in the middle that seems to be the the apple of their eye. Exciting worlds of science fiction. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Hero can fly over the city and he doesn't have to worry about the smog levels at all. I looked into um, uh, scientific consultants for this, and, and apparently there's a uh, an intermediary group that uh, effectively unite the entertainment industry with relevant scientists. And it you, very it's not so much so that scientists can come in and go, "You're doing that wrong. You're doing that wrong. You're doing that wrong." It's so that they can, you know, the production teams can ask scientists, say, for example, "How do we decorate this laboratory so that it is both accurate to science?" You know, in, in this particular field, but also in the case of Watchmen, period accurate. We had to have this various labs over various different decades. Well, this this goes with what I think big budget movies are leaning towards. If you look at the ones that seem to be particularly successful and not surprisingly so, like Venom, for example, was surprisingly <laughs> successful. <laughs> but the ones yep. that you look at and go, yeah, that's going to do really well, and yeah. then they do. There's an authenticity about them, there's a sincerity about them, and it's it's in the screenwriting, it's in the directing, it's in the acting, but it's also in the aesthetic, in the background, in the set dressing, everything that they put into it. It doesn't necessarily have to be a perfect one-on-one replication, because if it was, then every scientific environment would look goddamn boring. Mm. But it does need to look as though it's close to being real that somebody who knows that environment isn't going to look at it and go well that's a load of bollocks because it's what we were saying the other day about showing a film about war and combat to somebody who's actually served if they immediately go well that's entirely wrong you've alienated a sizable chunk of your audience what that authenticity is recognizing is that there's a lot more people out there these days who are specialized in stuff who know the things that you're going to talk about hmm. and they have the means to tell all of their twitter followers well that was a load of boncom <laughs> it's part and parcel of research to to actually create your world as well to, it, it doesn't it's not so much that it uh, it costs you much more money. Uh, it's more time intensive mm-hmm. to bring that many people in to to get it done right. But I I, I can you know I was reading down this uh, um, interview and it seems to have enriched movies. Even Amazing Spider Man was uh, name checked in terms of that they were originally asking, well, what walls could a lizard climb on that Spider Man couldn't, and how could Spider Man climb on walls? And apparently, a lot of this stuff that the scientists get conveyed doesn't end up in the film mm. which is a bit of a shame yeah. but there, there's constraints really it comes down to how willing the entertainment industry are to incorporate 
relatively real world ideas into what they're doing. Well, I think they're, they're finding a midpoint, aren't they? They're finding mm. something that is still going to be entertaining and doesn't completely mess up all the ideas that the writers have come up with so far, but still conveys that sense of realism. And when you're doing something in live action as well, it's like giving your actors the right coat and the right shoes. You're giving them an environment that they can feel authentic in. Um, I mean, just first-hand experience with this. Like, I've in working on a short, like a Cars tune short, where like like Mater becomes a plane for a for a time. Don't worry about it. We brought in like a, a, a <laughs> have a plane too, in, a, like a pilot to explain like the how like planes generally function, so we could just make the look of like uh, wing flaps and just the the way just make plane flight look correct. And like all the information that he gave us was very helpful. At a certain point, we did have to say, "Would all of this work if the plane was a pickup truck?" And he'd say, "Oh no, oh my no." But then we also say, "Okay, but that is the short we're making, so we're probably just going to uh, we're probably going to keep going on that well, part." That's the but bit thank we're you for fudge. the rest of the details. That will help. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the same um, basic process of research and stuff that they seem to actually care about doing with the cultural things now, which. I mean, it's clear with Moana. And also, I think with this, that they did some actual research into, like, making it realistic, not only from the scientific side, but also, like, the cultural side with all of the Japanese stuff that's around, but still, you know, not making it feel too fakey for hmm. a sizable portion of the audience who would know what stuff is wrong. And and the, the, the cast is, is appreciably non-white most of the way through, unless they, you know, the, the characters... Uh, let's see who's at James Cromwell's playing Callahan. Alan Tudyk returns as uh, uh, red herring Alistair Cray. I'm so happy that Alan Tudyk is basically turning into Disney's John Ratzenberger. Yes. <laughs> Although I'm going to have to say, I think this is the least interesting Alan Tudyk is in any of the movies they oh, yeah. put him in. Sorry. He doesn't have anything to do in this. It's just, it's kind yeah. of like, there's, there's times when I'm like, he really sounds like the Candy King. That's a bit distracting. Mm. <laughs> He's the boring version yeah. of Wesselton, and that's all there is to yeah. it, really. Let's talk about the, the big heroes, uh, one through four. Uh, Honey Lemon, Gogo, Wasabi, and Fred as the supporting heroes. Uh, you know, just anything that you particularly noticed or liked about them, or maybe things you didn't like so much about them? I mean, the thing about the characters that aren't Hero and Baymax that really hit me is just that they kind of only have one character trait each. Mm -hmm. Like, maybe two. And that's not necessarily a huge dunk on the movie or anything but they just don't get a lot of time to flesh out who they are or their relationships to one another so it just kind of boils down to well wasabi is pedantic and fred is a stoner <laughs> and gogo is one of those many disney stoners well i mean a stoner in the same way that shaggy from scooby-doo is clearly a stoner yeah, but it's yeah. not Explicit. He's even described as a stoner in the, in the Wikipedia the, the, the fact that one of his lines is, my name's Fred, and it's been 30 days since, I don't think he was going to say my last confession. Mm. Yeah. True. Uh, no, you're right. I mean, the, what it lacks that, say, a Guardians has uh, would be times when these support characters sit down just two by two and talk to each other. The thing yeah. that I noticed in the first half of the movie that really bothered me was it just skips right past the part where Hero gets to know and becomes friends with these people at all. It's done in a montage. Yeah. Like, yeah. she knows them and has a relationship with them, but Hero just is there. And then all of a sudden they care about him, which is 
it just makes the relationships and the characters feel weaker because you don't know where any of them are coming from. Mm. I agree. Especially since you need their, like, for heroes arc, like, and dealing with mourning and loss and all that stuff. Like, if they're wanting to make a big point of his, like, him connecting to, like, networks of friends and having that support, we don't feel that friendship between them early on enough, I don't feel like, for that to really like pay off or make emotional sense. Yeah, the, the movie? This, this movie does have that same, it's the same problem that Atlantis had a little bit back in the, mm. like where the, all the support oh, characters yeah. kind of had their one note, but they at least talked to each other and did feel like they had some like history together. They had a little bit of something. Uh, and you see yeah, that relationship grow at least. Like I almost feel like the relationship from this would be better if Hiro hadn't met them at all before Tadashi died or, and then mm. they had to get to know each other or that we saw it when they first met but as is it's this half measure that this movie has a lot of half measures like that where it feels like it wants to try two different things but it just doesn't end up doing either of them i wouldn't necessarily call them half measures but there are a lot of places where they rely on visually conveying something and then neglect to back it up with anything further so as far as the characterization of the four heroes goes they use quite a bit of visual language to characterize them but as you say don't really give them time to flesh that out into something more three-dimensional ironically so honey lemon's a great example actually the fact that she is visually a stereotype of the brainy girl but then when she gets to express herself in her costume and how she behaves she's actually very girly and very giggly and those are two things that are in and of themselves stereotypical and we don't necessarily see the join where those two character elements come together and make her into a fleshed out character. Mm. They've got the visual motif of the group is obviously bonded with Tadashi because they're good friends with him, they've been working together for a long time and when he dies they shift that support very easily to Cass first of all and would do to Hero if he'd let them at the, at the wake but he won't so they shift it further down the line and then they come to support him later on but as you say you you don't get the connective tissue where you see those shifts take place and I think it would be a little bit less frustrating were it not for the fact that you can very very easily see the long stretches of action busy work that could have been cut down in order to make more space for that kind of characterization. Mm. Yeah, this movie has what I like to call a uh, mo- uh, montage sickness where it relies <laughs> very heavily. It's a thing that Disney did especially in like the early aughts where instead of actually showing what is going on emotionally or having character development, they just show a montage of a thing happening. Mm. Uh, Brother Bear is really bad for it, too. Treasure Planet as well. Treasure Planet. Uh, Tarzan is, like, the first signs of where it starts being like, oh, this could get bad if they keep doing it, and then they keep doing it. This (laughs) is the only one in the, like, recent era that I feel like falls prey to it in the slightest, but Mm. it it does. It does have one too many montage, at least. Oh, uh, have you seen Ralph Breaks the Internet? There's quite a bit of montaging in that. <laughs> I've, um, got, I've got to see that again before I start judging whether or not it's got <laughs> deeper issues structurally. Brave does I, I feel like I've well, only got a... so Pixar is not immune to this. Yeah. I, I feel like I've only got a half-formed criticism here, but I, I, I want to voice it to see if like it resonates or makes sense with any of the rest of you. Okay. I feel like this film succeeds in technically hitting all of the beats it needs to to get to the next point, to, like to 
logic, like plot logically explain and show like, all right, these people are becoming friends and you can look, you have enough information on screen to see that, yes, they have become friends without manage to making those connections or those points emotionally resonate and make you feel them to make you feel the the drama of that stuff happen as it, as it goes, Mm. you can see it happening and it's technically there, but there's not enough time for it to, to actually, you don't emotionally feel it the way you need to do a lot of the time. Phantom drama. I feel like that is like the whole structure of the film though. It feels that way to me where technically everything makes sense that's happening and it's going along in a way that logically proceeds, but every transition into a new scene just felt like, okay, now we're going to do this next thing. Even though like it followed logically, it just, nothing felt like very few things felt like they hit correctly. Mm. Each individual scene was okay, but it just, things just kept happening. And there are some scenes that are still really potent, like and on their yeah. own, they would they would be stronger, I think, if the uh, like if they had the dramatic weight going into them from the previous scenes the way they needed to. But the fact that those scenes work so strongly, even in isolation, is like they're really well constructed. And the scenes I'm mostly talking about are the ones with just hero, like with yeah, hero's okay. emotional arc. Yeah. yeah. The, uh, the character Gogo slightly bothered me, and I checked it with Sharon, and there was a mitigating thing which slightly smooths it out. But uh, there's the, if you look at the actual team that put this together, they had like a brother meeting where it's uh, everyone like they got together with a whole bunch of brothers and asked them about each other, and and, and they were uh, trying to sort of get what it was like to be in Hero's head and Tadashi's to to be able to rely on each other and to get that experience, especially when several of them hadn't actually had brothers in their lives. But then when you look at the actual production team talking, there's a lot of guys sitting around talking about it. So then when the character Gogo turns up, and she's like woman up, and she's like super tough and serious, takes no shit from anybody, and uh, this, what? You can say shit, but I can't. Mm. Shit. (laughs) Okay. So when the character of so when Gogo turns up and she's like super serious and uh, pr- you know professional takes no guff from anybody and uh, she's she's got that streak in her hair which is ever so slightly bothersome about the way that uh, Asian women are de- uh, depicted in movies because it d- uh, connotes uh, a slightly punky pushing away from uh, the uh, an oppressive Asian patriarchy but at the same time if all of them are doing it then it's kind of like they're all getting it's it's become a lazy western trope yeah yeah i I agree i felt very much the same gogo feels like a mashup of the cool asian and like girl badass stereotype characters yeah like mashed together and cranked way past 11 and like never once do they let her be anything else and because they don't allow her to show any kind of vulnerabilities or like we don't find out anything really about her it's good that you've got like a strong woman there and as you said sharon well from my perspective i again coming back to this thing about there are they're using visual stereotypes to sell the characters and not giving them capacity to really expand however it is too common in team films for there to be one girl, girl, Gamora. A girl who the stereotype 
varies to a point, but recently it's been the super competent, very stern, has no sense of humour, but gets stuff done. Doesn't put up with man babies. Exactly. Whereas in the 80s, is, it was the mother figure, the Chitara. Exactly. That, that it's, it's, like, it's like we can only cope with one woman at once, and more to the point, we can only cope with one type of woman at yeah. once. So luckily with Honey <laughs> Lemon there generation. as well. But what immediately leapt out to me about this is that, you first off, there are two girls on the team. Mm. And considering that it is a team of four, if you remove Tadashi, yeah. that's 50%, which is, yay! <laughs> yeah. There. You know, this is like my old thing about, look, just the one girl, can we have at least two so that we can get some sense yeah. that there are more than one female perspective? Again, if you want to kick away from this is just a boys film, you exactly. get some more girls the, in there. The fact helps. that you have Honey Lemon and Go-Go, and they are very, very different from each other, mm. and then you have Aunt Cass as well, who again has a very different type of female energy. I actually quite appreciated the fact that although they were dealing with stereotypes, they at least gave us several stereotypes to work with. Hmm. Yeah, it does make it feel a little bit better that there's more than one woman. And this is going to be an extension of the fact that I just don't think any of them interact enough. But it's interesting that there are two women there, but they don't interact with each other really in any particular way. There's not maybe much. one line that they talk to each other and not hmm. to one of the men in the whole movie. But then most yeah. people who are in this film, their role is to interact with Hero. And yeah. whenever Hero's on the room, everyone needs to be asking. Where's Hero? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it does seem like they just... I, I don't know that I follow the emotional motivation for almost any of these side characters as they're following Hero along and just doing things. It seems like they're mostly there to say their brand of funny thing mm. when it's time for a funny thing to be said. And then to become the superhero team at the end, which bums me out. I would love it if they were like, I want to like all of them because there's a lot to like about all of them. I think they're just, a, they're just a bit paper thin. Yeah. I think they're all potentially very good characters, yeah. but potentially is the word. I hope that the TV show, I haven't seen any of it, but I hope the TV show takes some time to like flesh out their relationships mm. and whatnot. Cause maybe it's better suited that. to that. Maybe yeah. it's better for serialization. They've got the capacity to do so in a TV show, certainly. And I, mm. I will admit to quite liking the woman up line. Uh, like yeah. woman up. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Go-Go might be a bit of a stereotype, but Go-Go is the exact kind of character I would have idolized when I was like 12 years mm. old. So I have a soft spot for her. Yeah, uh, there, there is definitely still. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't want to throw out the positivity of her character. Mm. With my my irritation is not that I don't like Gogo. It's that I wanted to see her be more complex. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that as we've discussed, you can apply that to pretty much everyone in the yeah. film, apart from Hero yes. and Baymax. Yeah. <laughs> Wasabi. It's neat that Wasabi is this big, tough guy who also is very, very meticulous and 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 can be quite and uh, skittish. And and uh, scared of being crushed and, and scared of quite a few things. Damon Wayans there, who hasn't yeah. uh, um, been in... Oh, it's Damon Wayans' son. Oh, shit. Oh. <laughs> it is A. Wayans. A. Wayans. Hang on. Damon Wayans. He of the Wayans. Oh, Damon Wayans. Ju- you could forgive me for seeing Damon Wayans and then going, oh, <laughs> Damon Wayans, and not seeing the junior bit. I did the same thing. It's okay. Cool. 
Okay, and then there is the fourth guy, Fred, uh, who I think we've said about all we can possibly say about TJ Miller in the Deadpool 2 oh, podcast. Yeah. <laughs> this is uh, not the place. What I will say <laughs> is that uh, TJ Miller has done some horrible things in his time and has not really accepted any actual responsibility for it. And so when we were watching the Disney animated shorts collection, which is very lovely, uh, and it cuts to, uh, on the uh, bonus features, a uh, conversation with the animators hosted by your host, TJ Miller. And then you've got this guy staring out at the Disney kids. And you're thinking, okay, so they fired James Gunn, dot, dot, mm. dot. And, uh, yeah, so uh, uh, things can change. And, and the delight that hearing TJ Miller's voice uh, in 2014 can change to so much worse. Uh, however... It's not the worst cameo in this film. Uh, did, can, can anyone guess what I'm going to go to for the, the person in the cast who it's like, oh, I bet Disney wish they could backpedal on that one. I have a guess. <laughs> I don't know well enough. I The thing in the credits that bothered me the most is John Lester, but that was before there anybody is, cared of course, about that. that. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, this this one's uh, it would appear unique to Big Hero 6, even though John Lester has obviously touched so many things that are wonderful. He is the... Uh, there are bad elements in that element of things that are very good otherwise. Uh, but, uh, yeah, Dan, shoot. Who, who are you thinking here? I'm thinking Billy Bush as the newscaster. Bingo. Billy Bush. Oh, God. Yeah. Uh, folks Yikes. at home, you may remember Billy Bush from this wonderful little piece of footage. I took off her and I moved on her like a bitch. But I couldn't get there. And she was married. And all of a sudden, I see her. She's now got the big phony tits and everything. She's totally changed her look. She's your girl's hot as shit in the purple. Whoa. Whoa. Yes. Whoa. Yes, Nadal Biscord. Whoa. <laughs> oh, my man. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. You just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab them by the... But her emails. <laughs> I can do anything. Click. Give some for Bushy. Yeah, this this human anus. Uh, so, yeah, I uh, wish I could remove him from both the movie and the world. Anyway, so, interestingly enough, after I did a little digging, Billy Bush went on the late show with Stephen Colbert in uh, December 2017 to talk about that tape, apologize for his part in it, and say that we should believe the women accusing Trump of sexual assault. That makes him a bigger, more responsible guy than I expected. I agree with what you, that, your question. I agree with your question. Women must be believed, and we must, we kind of have to find our way to, um, to have the dialogue. I'm worried that the dialogue isn't going to be around because we have all these, we get on to the next thing. We get on our phones. We have the next outrage comes. We have to continue it all the way through. And I hope we do that. I wonder if that wasn't one of the roles that was different depending on what region you were in. Because yeah. I know that this movie had a couple of those. Um, oh, right. So it would have been a British newscaster in the UK, possibly. I know in the UK edition, the two scientists in the like te- the like um, security footage were two British YouTubers that I followed. Oh, right. Okay. They're just other people in the like American and DVD editions. So maybe Billy Bush was... Not in the theatrical cut, yeah. at least. Uh, uh, we can stop talking about him. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah. Uh, I, I do have one note about Fred, if okay. we're planning on moving on, is that I do really rue the fact that it's T.J. Miller, because I personally feel like Fred is, of the other characters, the one that I 
felt worked the best because he just was a comedy character and I don't feel like I was missing depth to him because I just mm. don't think there was any more to him than what was there. <laughs> because yeah, he was he, the group Shaggy. Like, he does seem like he was the character who would be the side comedy bit character who is there to make a few jokes and you don't expect anything more from them. Mm. And he is exactly that. And it's so, and he has no more depth than any of the, the people around him, but you were expecting more from the people around him. Fred mm. is delivering exactly as expected. Mm. So he works. One thing I really liked about him was the the hidden, I would say depths, but the hidden things that you didn't necessarily expect. So the fact that he reveals that he has resources, he has money and he has inspiration in the sense that he is the comic book nerd that mm. gives them the urge towards superheroes. Yeah, he also yeah, he repels them down the road. Yeah, he's the heart of the group, if mm. you will. Oh, and which uh, is yeah, he works slightly better than the others because they actually give him more to do. That his house becomes their base. Mm. There's stuff going on with Fred. Also, I guess it's nice that they're friends with a guy who could never get into their program. Yeah, mm, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. a nice touch. And can I just briefly mention the bit at the end, or are we going to save that? No, you can end? mention it now. Yeah. It's fine. Uh, the Stan Lee cameo at the end made me think that there's obviously the MCU is a separate thing but I'd like to think that there is a Marvel multiverse going on and it's linked together by the Stan Lee cameos so anything where he turns up is actually all part and parcel of the same batch hmm. including this is actually... the Teen Titans Go movie so that mm. just really opens <laughs> things wide open this is actually one of my favourite Stan Lee cameos Mm. largely because he was so happy to be in a Disney animated movie. Like mm. I've seen interviews with him about this and he was, he grew up on Disney animated stuff. So he was just so excited to be in one. And I just think that's adorable. And I'm glad he got that. Yeah. Well, it opens up possibilities as well for things that the, the live action MCU are probably not going to touch, but Disney could quite easily do an animated squirrel girl or power pack. He was briefly in uh, uh, Ralph Breaks the Internet. There's a, a Stanley looking guy online, mm. and I think he was mm-hmm. probably going to say something, but maybe they pulled it at the last second. He just he goes whoa at one point, and that's mm. about it. Because yeah. um, that came out like on the day, on the day that uh, he left us. Oh, uh, wow. I've got a neat little note about um, uh, uh, Gogo here. Actually, the uh, at the end when uh, she's being like it's during the big fight where just it's chaos going on all over the place. Uh, it's difficult to remember things that happen during big chaotic fights. But one thing I noted was that Gogo was constrained inside this sort of like machine crushing nano um, ball. And it was sort of closing in around her. And she rescued herself and, and sort of, you know, got herself out of that particular scrape. It had shades of what happens to Kaori at the end of Akira, only Gogo's able to save herself. This is beside the point. What I was trying to figure out why Callahan is repeatedly using lethal force against these kids. Yeah, he goes from clearly a caring professor who'd like give his like cares about his students to being completely willing to murder them and like zero to 60 yeah like, i know i will carry wise they go, want go. To, so like i know function wise they want like a villain who's scary and like oh no the villain saw us always going to attack us oh no like before you know who he is but once mm. you know who he is like 
they're not even getting in his like he has one objective as a villain mm. and there are lots of times when he attacks them that they're not even getting in his way they just saw him and he's it's not like he was being subtle Hmm. So expected to be, I don't know. There is a sense of the volume having been turned up on it, but I think that once you know Callahan's motivation, once you know <coughs> that he is driven by grief and yeah. and anger and frustration, he then becomes a mirror for Hero. So it's important, I think, especially considering that this is a kids' movie and this is not me saying that kids can't take nuance, but sometimes it does need to be dialed up that little bit. Hero is willing to kill when he doesn't need to because he is so grief-stricken and angry mm. about the loss of Tadashi. And it's the reflection of that in Callahan that makes him realise. So I think it kind of needed to be maybe not quite that loud, and I do understand what you mean about the 180. Uh, but again, I think that's more symptomatic of what we've already said about there isn't the time to really go into how the characters are fleshed out. Uh, that is actually a good explanation. Him reflecting hero like actually does make sense as a well, yeah, a, like as a logical reason for to have present the character that way. Because if like he had been sort of like, whoa, I don't want to kill you, kids, just get the hell out of my way, then uh, hero would have like hero being desperate to kill him would have made hero technically worse than him. Mm. Mm. Yeah, which could have been interesting if they developed it, but they weren't ever yeah. going to do that. I almost feel like having Callahan be a surprise twist villain really weakens that mirroring effect because you don't have as often, you don't have as much time to think about it. Hmm. There's not enough time to really parallel the characters, so it just... It's a little Scooby-Doo? It's a little too quick, yeah. <laughs> it it would have been better had Disney held off on their twist villain fetish for, like, one movie, but... We talked about this when we did, um, uh, I think it was The Princess and the Frog, how they've gone from the, the like overly theatrical, gloating, singing villains to these, you know, uh, either uh, troubled uh, dads who uh, are just, you know, consumed by anger and still believe that they're righteous. Or in the case of Hans, just straight up boring, bitter bastards who are resentful they don't have more power. Jafar without the singing. Or the parrot. <laughs> or the camp. <laughs> I think I just literally described Jafar in the new live-action Aladdin. Say goodbye to... I love the way your foul little mind works. One visual element I really appreciated about Callahan actually, was simply how he uses the microbots. He felt really Doc Ockish to me. Hmm. The fact that he's ah. using these oh, uh, devices yeah. to commit atrocities... But he doesn't have to do right. them with his own hands. What you've done there is just outline that we've already covered this exact same story with the PlayStation Spider-Man game, as well as covering this exact same story just a few weeks ago. Let's talk Bumblebee and Spider-Verse and the Iron Giant. Bumblebee and Into the Spider-Verse came out within days of each other, and both of these films eclipse Big Hero 6 in terms of... Everything Big Hero 6 does, a major element of, of, of one of those two films does so much better. Mm. And as yep. you said, the, the thing about Doc Ock, the PlayStation 4 game mm. yeah. has this character of Callahan in it, but you get to know him the whole way through. So you get his full arc until he finally gets consumed by rage. Mm. There's the problem, the overriding problem with Big Hero 6 is and I'm going to nail it right now, we've seen it done better since 2014. It's only been five years. I would argue we've seen it done better, well, at least large chunks of it, well before this movie came out, because you mentioned The Iron the Giant. Iron but Giant. also, I just rewatched the 2000s Sam Raimi Spider-Man mm -hmm. for the first time in ages, and 
yeah, even that hits the origin superhero story thing a lot better than this does with a smart kid who's, you know, trying to do his best after the loss of a family member. Yeah, true. And if you look at what really connected from this film in terms of the merchandise, there's one thing. Baymax? And it's the one thing about it that's unique, and that's Baymax. 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 Yeah, um, the... Iron Giant was always the, the, the touchstone for me with this film because I was like, because nobody saw the Iron Giant, at least Big Hero 6 exists because it kind of teaches kids that whole element of a boy getting over the death of a family member, which Hogarth is, uh, to, you know, by, by way of a friendly robot. And it kind of tells that story. But now we've got Bumblebee that does that so much better. And... It, it kind of leaves Big Hero 6 just sort of flapping about as this diet version of one of these other better films, or indeed video games. And, that- and it's, it's not bad. It's not a bad film. It's just it doesn't shoot for the moon. It doesn't. And that is not to say that the same story can't be told over and over again, because if that was the case, we'd have stopped telling stories somewhere hmm. in the BCs and we wouldn't be bothering anyone. And we'd be out of a job. Well, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, yeah, these the themes will crop up, and ultimately I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that other films come along that, that take over and do it better and refine it. Hmm. And the reason that these themes keep cropping up over and over again is that they are universal and they are timeless and they need to keep cropping up. Up over and over again so that if the previous one didn't quite land we can have another pass at mm. it and we can have another go at telling that particular story with that particular moral i don't think we should be in a world where somebody has a really important message but because the way they told that particular story didn't quite click with wide audiences we go oh well they don't get to know about that particular message mm. ever again well yeah like because like, we want originality i'm not saying we want originality no no uh, and People only originality say they want originality don't really want originality yeah. what i mean is uh, I mean, lyra said the other day oh that Coraline and Get Out are the same story. She didn't say Get Out copied Coraline. No. She said, oh, the same story, which is a really good way of, of, of conveying that it's the same story retold. And it blew my goddamn mind. <laughs> <laughs> She's got a budding uh, media mind right there. She does, yeah. Um, yeah sharp. Uh, but uh, honestly, Dan, can you cast your mind back to a few episodes ago on, the, on our Disney shows where a young boy who kind of doesn't really fit in gets in with a bunch of science-crazy fa- new sort of family members and sort of finds his place. And it is. Meet the Robinsons. Bingo! <laughs> yes. Only this one's, like, you know, without the wastage of food. Uh, possibly because they, these guys could really genuinely come up with cornucopia technology. Although Honey Lemon does have that enormous sphere of tungsten carbide. That's a whole lot of tungsten carbide. 400 pounds of it! That she just disintegrates. You couldn't just get a pallet of scrap iron or something with even less recycling use? It feels like you could have made a lot of tungsten carbide drills with that. Tungsten carbide drills? What the bloody hell's tungsten carbide drill? It's something they use in coal mining, Father. But, um, yeah, it's... It, it's it, I, I, I'm not in any way throwing Disney under the bus for riffing on the same formula as they've done before or others have done before. I think it just comes down to the fact that because we got into the Spider-Verse and Bumblebee and they're so fresh in my mind and they were so wonderful to watch, 
that coming back to this, I, I had this sort of edgy feeling of what am I going to get out of this one? And Sharon's right, it was Baymax. So that's our next talking point. Yeah, the other thing is that uh, one of the ways that you can normally make retelling a thing more interesting and more lively is by combining it with other things that it hasn't been happened before or hasn't been done before. And yeah. in theory, the boy gets over his grief by building a robot or hanging out with a robot story mixed with boy becomes a superhero getting over his grief story could be a really good way of doing that yeah but it just doesn't quite coalesce and it's not trying enough things that are exciting to be at least one of those disney movies where you're interested in it at least for what it fails to Mm. accomplish because it's not it's not pushing the envelope as much as say atlantis or treasure planet where at least when those movies fail you're like Okay, but there's some really interesting ideas here mm. that they haven't touched before. And also, similarly, to turn the sword on Bumblebee, it's not particularly original in its own right at all. It's retelling things that have happened before. It's just that it mm-hmm. does them really well. During the uh, Unchained Melodies scene, it's more heartbreaking than any uh, than even the most heartbreaking scene in um, uh, Big Hero 6. And... I suppose that there is an internal ranking when you watch those kind of things, which slightly blunt the impact of other competitors. Honestly, this didn't even like Big Hero Six is maybe equal to, or even a little bit below, a movie I saw on Netflix this year that's about a girl and her robot called Next Gen, which I don't think anybody watched. But huh. that movie's at least doing some interesting stuff with world building that I don't feel like. Big Hero 6 is really trying. Mm. And uh, I don't think we really mentioned Penny Parker from uh, Into the Spider-Verse, the fact that her <sighs> father's in that uh, um, spider bot. It's, it's, it's got shades of this in there, obviously, uh, as well. And that's only a really small part of the film. But the bigger part of uh, Into the Spider-Verse is, of course, finding people like me. That's the, the, the tone of the film. And, and, and again, does that. Dan, did you get to see that in the end? I did. It's wonderful. It is. That's so good. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, let, let, but let's talk about the biggest strong point of this, uh, which which is of course Baymax, and it's more impressive that they managed to bring this Baymax to the screen. Since if you look at the original one, it's just this scaly green dragon dude who then I think ended up like armored and some sort sort of like you know robot that transforms into a dragon. You know, for the for the full like. Japanese culture shock aspect of him, but uh, but but yeah, they made him cuddly. Yeah, Baymax is probably one of my favorite like robot designs in the like recent years because it's, it he's so unique looking and cuddly is not usually something you get with robots, and that they aced it with this one. And I mean, his actual function is really like hit or miss as to whether or not he would just randomly kill people but i'll chalk chalk that up to him being not actually finished but as like a character and as a comedy and emotional core he is so good and i i love baymax baymax is great the simplicity of him is just really charming and wonderful The, the fact that his like not only is he clearly not entirely finished but the fact that he is so simple that processing movement even seems like a thing that he has to take some time to think about like he there's a dis- when you first are introduced to him, there's just a distinct movement of like, 
I'm going to turn my head to look over here. That's where I need to go. All right. Walk, 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 walk. Wait. Bumped into a thing. Move. Grab it. Shift it over here. Straighten up. Walk, 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 walk. Like, the fact that he can't <laughs> seem to multitask in movement is just, like, that's precious. That's adorable. Hmm. Yeah, uh, because that hasn't been prioritized. His, all yeah. of his processing power, not all of, but a lot of his processing power goes towards his primary function, which is to heal, which is to help. And one of the things I really loved about him, and this is quite a subtle thing, actually, Baymax can fix himself. Yes. When he springs leaks, he can identify a method by which he can repair that. And he uses up his resources there's a point where he's been doing what he's doing a little bit too long and he's had to let a bit of air out and he needs to replenish he needs to reinflate he needs to recharge and that's something that is often missed when stereotypical healer characters are being created that they are supremely self-sacrificing and always putting them you know other people before themselves to the point where you don't see them replenish and therefore people think well that's their primary function that's just what they do it's more impactful when he completely self-sacrifices at the end Mm -hmm. i feel like i can't remember the last time i saw a a robot that was built as for as like a healing like a medical thing but that was actually built as he would build one in real life that is built like a supportive huggable safe feeling friendly cuddly like so, like encouraging mm. design of robot i feel like i've never seen that in media like there are medical bots that just look like sort of scary robots that have just like <laughs> that healing utilities instead of weapons but they don't feel like something you would actually design to like take to like take care of a kid in a hospital absolutely mm. yeah. i've seen articles about people using robots in care homes yeah, to, yeah. to deliver medication. And it's like a, a rumba with a pill bottle. Stuck <laughs> in I mean, in Japan, actually, though, they are doing more work on robotics that are uh, like approachable, like Baymax for healthcare purposes. There's like robots in care homes for lifting people that basically just like, like big weird teddy bears mm. because... You know, people don't react well to scary metal monsters. No, or things that look too human. Yeah, it's yeah. exactly it's what uh, that that video you did on the Uncanny Valley a long time ago, uh, Dan, oh, has been my back. constant uh, uh, like go back to 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 illustrate to people when they're not sure what I mean when I'm, I'm describing that that dipping point where it just starts to look human, but it's no longer stylized. Uh, and, and Baymax obviously leans hard into the, the super stylized, even down to the fact that um, they, there's a couple of design points which I loved about him. The um, the two ball like dot eyes joined by a, uh, a a line. They found that on some metalwork, and they just really loved the actual shape of that, so they incorporated that into his design. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, did anyone find out wh- how they based his like walking movements? What they based that on? Is he just based on like a toddler? Mm-hmm. A toddler specifically like a toddler. with a full diaper. <laughs> well, he's a Teletubby. Yeah, he's kind of just oh, waddling around. The, and he's kind got of... the video screen in his in his middle, but he also reminds me a little bit of um, Winnie the Pooh. No, well, yes, yes. there is that. Um, but Nanny in uh, Spaceballs. Yes. Oh, oh I mean, Dot Matrix. He also looks a lot like the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man, yeah. but not murdery. But not, yeah, not. But if Sterling Holloway or Jim Cummings' voice of Winnie the Pooh came out of Baymax, you'd go, that kind of works. Mm. That, that sort of yeah. works. Oh, bother. He, 
he looks like a character who could also work really well in like traditional 2D animation because he is just a series of ovals, basically, mm. which is, you know, standard Mickey Mouse style design work right there. Absolutely. Yeah. He's he's clearly designed to be as accessible to kids as possible and to sort of uh, bring them in and, and make them instantly trust him, especially with his little slight movements and he's the least aggressive thing imaginable. Mm. And th- the fact that he's sort of slow and slightly awkward means that it builds up trust in him. So when he does finally start moving in a kick-ass fashion, all the kids and adults are thoroughly behind him. Um and there's one more design feature uh, about uh, Baymax that I really like, obviously, apart from the fist bump. Hello. And just that, that little hand movement of, of his, like, his greeting of hello, which, again, like, they, they make it totally as appealing as possible to little children who would otherwise be frightened of a big robot. Although one of Lyra's favourite tropes is always the thing that looks frightening but is actually gentle. It turns out not to be. But from a, from a caring and a medical perspective, you can't yeah. afford that time for the child to get used to the creature mm. and understand that they're not threatening. But the watchword of his movements was unimation, as in they would hold back on it to make him as uh, slight as possible in, in how he uh, uh, manoeuvres himself. Uh, to first off because it, it's funny and approachable, and second off because he is effectively walking therapy for Hero, uh, and this makes it wildly different from some of the like you know super crazy you know movement and flying about all over the place of most superhero movies. Mm, yeah. There's also the fact that his <coughs> design in this sort of inflatable body around the the carbon fiber frame which when you get the very short glimpses of it that you do looks very droid like um one of the elements of a shape like that that's big and inflated and soft is that it can take punishment it's not that baymax doesn't feel pain or or doesn't feel damage or anything like that but if hero lashed out in frustration Baymax could take that. And when you're, when support is being given for somebody who is in a state of emotional distress, the person giving the support needs to be able to take a certain degree of punishment because emotions don't manifest themselves in the way that you can necessarily predict and sometimes they come out harmfully. Mm-hmm. And having that that sort of the look about him that says you can break down in front of me, it's okay. He even says, it is okay to cry. That's something he's been programmed with because there's this instinctive understanding from Tadashi that that's something that children might need to be told. Yeah. One of the uh, one of our absolute favourite Pixar films is uh, Inside Out, um, principally because it teaches children in a very symbolic like easy to understand way about these five core emotions and and a that you know how they work b how they sometimes might clash and c how it's okay to feel all of them at different times and what this seems to be doing in in a way that's very similar to a lot of films we've already mentioned and in a way that's I suppose, less explorative than Coco when it comes to death and memory and grieving. But it is a, the, the key remit of this film is to suggest to kids, sometimes 
you can be hurting inside and there may appear to be absolutely nothing physically wrong with you that a medical bot could not ascertain what the problem is, but you're hurting anyway, and you tell yourself and other people, I'm fine, when you're not. And the more children, especially boys, learn that early on, the better. The better the world will be. Mm. Agreed. That anger is how emotions are often manifested when people aren't able to express what they're really feeling is I think primarily because what you're trying to do, if you're feeling something that you're then trying to squash you're fighting it and when you're trying to fight something, your body gives you anger because that helps you fight things that is its literal purpose and then everything becomes anger it is easier to feel anger sometimes because it can get you through it can keep you moving whereas grief and sadness will just stop you in your tracks Mm, absolutely and you see that again it's a visual marker but his little microbot gets his anger face on (laughs) because that's what Hero's feeling that's what all of his loss and grief and upset is coming through as and it, it he kind of squashes it and channels it and one thing that struck me this time watching it was the speed with which he seizes on this is the bad guy the fire wasn't an accident these the microbots were stolen i just want somebody to blame yeah because it that gives him a path to follow and by god whatever path he's given is better than this big hole he's sitting in right now mm. Mm. i feel like it would be again stronger if we knew more about where he was to begin with because they kind of set up countering character traits for him in the beginning so when he lashes out and becomes aggressive because of his grief you wonder whether or not it's a default mode for him because of the bot fighting or not because of the creative side that he clearly has in the school and the contest and I wish it was a little cleaner because the grief stuff is the strongest part about the movie, but it's muddled like everything else, unfortunately. It is easy to forget that grief in the moments between when he is... I think Sharon is rightly like pointing out that he's either seizing on a direction for some sort of goal or new objective to focus his all his energy into, or he's just kind of taking delight in the distraction of some joyful like exciting stuff that happens and it's easy I think for us as viewers emotionally to get caught up in that fun and then suddenly get kind of yanked back down to the grief part when he does as it currently is it's harder to feel those moments as a distraction it's harder to remember the grief that he has still got going underneath like intensely but we we kind of forget it for a stretch functionally. Well, the movie also kind of forgets it, not just from the audience perspective, but the scene when they're flying, which is excellent and visual and wonderful in a lot of ways. But when they're done, they're sitting on top of that balloon and Baymax is ready to shut down because Hero has been distracted enough to be happy for a minute. And that's not how grief works. And the movie seems to kind of forget that he's still going through something just for a bit it suggests that he's actually fine now as long as he just keeps keeping himself distracted 
I don't think the movie is necessarily suggesting that. Baymax is saying it because he is very inexperienced with dealing with emotional hurt. Fair. But the movie could have made more of a point of the fact that Hero was only fleetingly okay and happy for a bit. That it's, it, yeah. Well, the fact that he immediately then turns around and says, well, no, we, we still have more work to do. That, yeah. that kind of told me that there's still more of that to go. But I think the, the wanting the distraction that you were talking about, Dan, that is very consistent with how Hero's character is built up in from the beginning of the film because it's mentioned very early on that he lost his parents at a very young age. I think he says he was three, which yeah. is a point in your life where your emotional capacity is is starting to form. So their their absence are, in effect, that has always been a part of his life. For as long as he's had emotional things to deal with the the lack of his parents has been a part of it hero demonstrates a lot of traits that could be pinned to an adhd diagnosis it's obviously never mentioned that that's what he has but the way he behaves the way he responds to things elements like he graduated high school when he was 13 and then spent a year doing sweet fanny adams because he couldn't find anything that would engage him enough to give him focus and give him a challenge and it manifests itself as his addiction to the bot fights and having a brain that is very addictive and will seize on these things is an ADHD trait being very easily distracted and finding it difficult to focus on things um, that his mental agility, the fact that he's easily bored, the hyper-focus that enables him to manufacture all of those microbots in a relatively short space of time, um, and the fact that he seizes on bad guy must chase as a way of channeling his emotions. That is all consistent with, with that kind of, of neurological state. He does seem like his mind is just going 100 miles a minute all the time, like everybody with ADD or ADHD that I know, and he just needs it to settle on something. Mm. Having his emotions being very turbulent as well, which, as Baymax rightly identifies, is absolutely normal for the, the stage of life that he's at, then layer grief on top of that, then layer the fact that it's a, a refreshed grief, because he's not only lost his brother, he's lost the only remaining member of his family apart from his aunt, who is, we, we don't know how much of an aunt she is or what his, his direct relation to her is, but certainly his, his core family is now all gone apart from him. So there's all sorts of things that are, are kind of combining to make his state incredibly turbulent and to stabilise that with a neurotypical brain is hard enough. When Baymax uh, makes his turn, he is effectively reprogrammed by having his medical side yanked out by Hero deliberately to get revenge. He becomes this uh, arbiter of, uh, of, of rage, which is uh, Hero's depression manifesting itself in its most destructive. I think I've already answered my own question. <laughs> I, was, I was just like <laughs> off the top of my head. I was, I was going to say, what does it add uh, to the uh, Iron Giant and indeed Bumblebee scenes where the exact same scenario plays out? Something gentle that we've seen as, uh, as peaceful then suddenly becomes violent. It's the choice. It's that it's the hero doing it or the protagonist doing it intentionally. Yeah. Yeah, I, I didn't I intend like to answer that one myself. Sorry, guys. Well, it's, it's, I like I like the touch that uh, Baymax 
in his natural state is an extension of Tanashi because like the, he's got a literal card like inside him that has Tanashi's name on it and like Baymax is just Tanashi Tanashi almost given new life. Baymax in fighting form is Tanashi plus heroes adding like adding some of himself into Baymax. Take Tanashi out and all that is left is just hero which like just heroes just inner turmoil which is actually terrifying when unleashed on somebody. Mm. Tadashi. And that is again this is the manifestation of the anger taking over and it the removal of Tadashi's chip so that Baymax can just become a manifestation of hero's anger. The way, there's a shift there in the action sequence because you have the the lead up to it which is the slightly brain numbing yes yeah, skateboarding all around the screen and not you know lots of sound and fury going on but not really anything that's particularly emotionally engaging but there is a sense in the music and in the structure of what you're seeing on the screen that this is fun this is exciting after that happens after he removes the chip there is a shift and it's it's made very very clear that this is not good this is not fun it's not exciting the team are all trying to prevent what is happening and honey lemon deactivating Baymax and putting the chip back in is making it very very clear that this is not how things should be this is not an acceptable way for hero to resolve this situation it's to, uh, it's hero's hulk and honey lemon's <laughs> giving him the uh, sun's getting real low big guy a little bit yeah <laughs> The other thing about this version of the nice thing goes evil is that unlike those versions where usually the robot has to like really try very hard not to go back into that mode. This one, Baymax doesn't struggle at all with that. It is Hero that is struggling with it, which is it's putting him much more directly on the protagonist, which is Mm. interesting. And the fact that Baymax asks him that wonderful, wonderful question, will terminating Callahan improve your emotional state? Because although it's a question, it's not a question. He's telling him, no, it won't. And Hero knows, no, it won't. Because like, he won't, he can't even give a yes answer. It's like, yes, no, I don't know. Like, he's just, he's just, one again, task-oriented, like, just please, like, I'm, I'm trying to do a thing. Stop getting in my way. Yeah, He's but smart he- enough to know. Absolutely, yeah. and it's it's the it's the lack of Tadashi in his approach that is so very very wrong about it, and the way that Baymax brings him around, not even necessarily consciously doing so, he he can tell that Hero needs more Tadashi, so he shows him the the video footage of the test sequences, and that it it allows Hero to feel that his brother is in the room with him again. It's him saying and doing things that he hasn't seen. So it's not just revisiting his own memories. It's new stuff. And it gives him humour and hope and love, which are the feelings that he's pushed to one side because they hurt and let the anger override. But bringing them back in and making their presence very prominent neutralizes those anger chemicals that have been driving him so far the movie is the key line for this whole section is that Tadashi is here 
that repeated thing that he's railing against at the start of the movie because Tadashi isn't physically there anymore. And it's it's a good, very well done part of the arc that when things get the darkest, when he is in the worst state of things, is when he has thrown out all that is left of Tadashi, that it is that he is actually gone and that's when he almost murders someone. When it comes to the uh, uh, saying goodbye sequence, I was racking my brains today to work out whether it's better or not as good that they go back on this. The um, the saying goodbye... One of my favourite examples of, uh, of the saying goodbye moment is... Super 8 mm. it has a wonderful wonderful symbolic release and then the film is done whereas this much like the Iron Giant you, you've got the goodbye you've got the I get exactly what this is I get that this is the letting go and then he brings the fist back and it's like oh he, he gave me the, the thing and then the Iron Giant pulls himself back together and you get Baymax back and everybody's alive again at the end and Hero gets to carry on with his life with his new friends and he gets to move on and he gets to be a better version of himself but he also gets the robot back so that we don't have to be sad and Disney gets to repurpose Big Hero 6 as TV and I, I wonder if this film actually dared to leave Baymax there and leave the children crying and hit you hard in the heart whether that would make it braver or whether they'd just be doing it for the sake of not undoing it I don't think it's a question that I can easily answer myself it's not an easy one to answer for my part I would say I like the fact that he brings him back (laughs) and this is kind of going back what I was saying earlier about it's a kid's film so they have to dial things up because this is very nuanced and it's subtle enough that I think it would be very easily to, easy to miss it. But the the chip that Baymax gives him to take with him and it, it ties in with that whole I, I will always be with you. And Baymax talks very literally so it's kind of, this is he's saying I'm giving you this bit of me. The Baymax who is sacrificing himself and letting himself go is not in that chip because that chip was not in him when he did it so it's like to me it's like baby Groot it is a Baymax it has the basic structure of Baymax and it has all of the Tadashi that he put into Baymax but it's not the exact same person I agree with that and I also think it's important or not necessarily important but I think it's a good way of of showing that Hiro has gotten to the place where he can rebuild something of Tadashi's without that completely destroying him that he he in theory must have had to completely build Baymax back up from scratch and probably go through some of the same process Tadashi did in making him work correctly and that he was moved on enough that he can focus on something that is healing as opposed to only designed for hurting and that he honors Tadashi's memory enough to have that be a focus for him. Dan? I mean, I have nothing better to add on top of what y'all have been been giving a lot of good ones here, so. I think we have to dial it back to thinking like a child at this point. Uh, As far as a child's concerned, hey, they got Baymax back. 
that a child doesn't concern itself with well that's not technically Baymax the same the same version as far as a kid's concerned the 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 sweet robot got taken away and I was very very sad and then he came back and I was happy and it's a film about accepting death not Guardians of the well, God sorry Guardians of the Galaxy is entirely about accepting death I am so sorry you know, to the kids watching Guardians of the Galaxy, oh, Groot died. He was like my uncle. He was lovely. But then he came back and he was this little dancing guy. And then it was this fun thing at the end. And so the kids, all of that heartache and pain, they're spared. The Lion King did the opposite, which is to just go, no, Mufasa's dead. He'll always be watching over you, remember. But he is gone. And Simba has to get over his grief to become a better version of himself. Mm. I think we've been talking about why Big Hero 6 seems to sort of not... Lack impact. Lacks impact. I think that this would have been one of the key aspects. I think that actually having the guts to go, you know what? Hero made his own robot. It's not Baymax, but he made his own robot. To indicate to the kids, we can move forwards, but you won't get the person back that you desperately want to come back. That's a very important lesson for children. I feel like the problem with doing a hero builds his own robot is that if it's at the very end, it's not going to come off as much besides, and then he replaced the person he lost with one that he built, which I feel like (laughs) is a a much worse message than sometimes you don't lose everybody. Okay. Well, they could still have made it that he's got these new friends he can now move forward. Maybe he gets a bit closer to his aunt, but made that clear to the kids. It's not about you get it back. Rather pointedly, Ted Hughes, mofo though he may have been in real life, wrote the Iron Man to explain to his children symbolically why their mother Sylvia Plath was gone and wasn't coming back so to have what oh because of me it's because of me kids sorry so you know but look metal man so the story of that I'm not saying oh they were they they ruined Ted Hughes legacy but the it, it is a slight failing of the iron giant as well that it does give you that that's that sweet ending that sort of oh he's all right uh, it, oh, isn't that swell? Now, I'm not saying that, you know, you must have death, otherwise there's no there's no impact. There's no sense of consequences or state. You know, Spider-Man coming back in this trailer tells children that there's no such thing as consequences. <laughs> However, in films about grief and loss and accepting that grief and loss, symbolically he couldn't accept Tadoshi's loss, but he can accept Baymax's, that's important. I'm not saying you have to kill people, but I am saying that sometimes some deaths are important for us. Yeah. Seeing how Hira moves on more healthily from Baymax's loss, like it is, I think, would be the more important thing than seeing Baymax come back. And I don't know that we have enough time to emotionally yeah. register Hero mo- successfully, healthily moving on from a loss. We just see him being not as down for a very short time and then in a montage. Then he has his robot. Yeah, and then he has a robot back. Yeah. There's a difference between being totally accepting of the use of a transitional object for, say, a three-year-old yeah. 
But a 14-year-old maybe needs to be able to understand mm. moving on. Also, we, we keep that. saying we don't have enough time. This is 102 minutes of a film. It's long for a Disney film. We had plenty of time. You just spent so much time with all those nanobot action sequences. Impressive though they were. Like the, to the to that end, all of this closure side of it got sidelined. It also has kind of, too much sorry, time with the twist villain nonsense yeah. that it really does not need to build on. Yeah. And then it kind of wraps on the wrong point. Like the fact that the very final scene is, and that's how we became superheroes, is like that's not <laughs> what this movie was about. <laughs> no, it's <laughs> super weird. And that was the story like, of the Avengers. There's, there's six different things that this movie is about. That really wasn't one of them. <laughs> Yeah, it, it kind of wants to be a superhero origin story, but it just isn't in any meaningful way. In the that, fact, yeah, superheroism is entirely like tertiary as a point to the, to this film's entire purpose for being. Yeah. yeah, the fact that the person who says this is an origin story is Fred. Fred is wrong. It's okay <laughs> that Fred is wrong. Yeah, <laughs> it's almost a joke actually that they did something superhero-y like when they're going to school at the end of the movie it's just like on the news in the background like and also these people saved the day but it was like completely adjacent like they just coincidentally saved the day because they were after that guy anyways i think this comes down to the film serving multiple masters it's trying to be a story about grief but it's also trying to be a story about superheroes but it's also trying to do superheroes that aren't licensed to the marvel films in existing property but are technically a marvel property and have lucrative franchise rights and possibilities and merchandising can we mention the merchandising (laughs) i think i said this when i was watching it the other day is that as a super as a superhero origin story, it would be like if the entire movie was Spider-Man trying to track down the guy who killed Uncle Ben. Yeah. And it's, that's not how you do a superhero origin movie because they have to move on at least somewhat in the midway so that they can do other things. I mean, closest is Guardians because at the end, Peter Quill has to take Gamora's hand and do the thing that he was terrified to do as a child, which ironically in the taking of the hand is the letting go guardians which came out earlier than this in the same year did this grief story better but they aren't trying to parallel ronin with uh oh my god star lord in any particular way yeah so it's not like hero and callahan so yeah you can kind of do that because it's just the character arc separate from the story arc well, there is a bit of a parallel, because Ronan uh, is super pissed off that his dad is dead, and so he's carrying out his father's terrible work. And Peter is very, very sad that his mother is dead, and as far as he's concerned, her wonderful work was music. <laughs> and he's, so he's rocking out to his uh, awesome mix. And it then, says something about how forgettable that Ronan is, that I did not remember at all that he had a grief motivator. I just thought he was like a genocidal maniac. I could be misremembering, but I think he says something along the lines of, My father was a humorless terrorist as well, and I am a humorless terrorist who literally bathes in the blood of the... What planet is it? Uh, the planet of people that I hate for some reason. I want to we'll say Z- it's, it's Zandarians him. he hates. Yeah. <clears throat> So, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, like the, the honestly, the parallel between Call- Callahan and Hero, because it's so like quickly introduced and then quickly snatched away. Like he's like, what? He's going? Would you relax? Okay, he's going to jail. <laughs> 
because yeah, that's in much. and then back out again, there isn't really time, especially for, for not for kids, to absorb that fact. Mm. You don't get, as well, any real consequence of him realising that Abigail is still alive. There's yeah. a... There's a brief moment where she's being wheeled out on the gurney by the paramedics and he's being ducked into a police car and you get a fleeting flash of the look of utter disappointment in himself on his face that because of everything he's done, at this point where he now knows she's still alive, he can't reach out to her because he's handcuffed mm. and on his way to jail. Again, we didn't have time, but there could have been a scene where he's just you know beside her gurney and then she wakes up and then he is filled with and this is going to be difficult for Disney to animate because they don't tend to do this much a a, a, a smash of combination of ambivalence feeling two strong things at the same time relief and shame yeah but you know much more many more sequences with TJ Miller sucking around his family mansion <clears throat> much more important I feel like maybe a way they could have potentially fixed the like I'm going to say pacing and structural issues with the grief plotline is just having Abigail and Callahan's relationship shown somewhere in the beginning, have Abigail be another one of the classmates they have mm. and have the death in the like laboratory be not caused by Callahan. And something and, that uh, and affects Abigail all of is, them as well. Yeah. And Abigail is who Tadashi is trying to save. And like, she can still turn out to be alive at the end but that would make the fact that Tadashi isn't hurt even more. Yeah. I don't know. I'm writing fan fiction at this point, but I think there's <laughs> so much good in this movie and it just bothers me that it doesn't it just doesn't coalesce into the yeah. like it could have been so good. It, it doesn't hit been- that five star max you know, max out like this is an absolute classic. It's certainly got great elements to it though. There are yeah. a lot of seeds of things that you could kind of very cynically see a sequel bait, but there are things that they... Could or animated have... series bait. Yeah, indeed. But there it's are cheaper. things that they really could have developed that could have been incredibly interesting. One of the things that, that really blew me sideways was the the space in between the teleportation portals. Mm-hmm. It looks like the quantum realm mm. from uh, Ant-Man. Yeah. And it's... The thing that always strikes me about how quantum places and times etc are portrayed is we we still don't really know much about what they are a quantum state is kind of like saying well it's it's something and it's somewhere but we don't know what so we kind of have to interact with it hypothetically and we have to treat quantum realms as something else to be able to negotiate them and it's it's like that sense of using metaphors and stories to get around our own psyche so that scene where hero is saying goodbye to baymax in this world of blue and purple clouds bless you thank you feels to me very much like he's kind of gone into his own emotional state at that point Mm. And Baymax saying to him, you have to tell me you're satisfied with your care so that I can deactivate. He's trying to say goodbye in the only way he really knows how. Which is why the importance and permanence of that moment really needed to be stated as opposed to... And Baymax, who did not die... Oh, that's swell! (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, also, speaking of Ant-Man, like you take Callahan and Abigail, put them in a shaker, and then divide them back out again. You've got Ghost and Janet Pym. Yeah. Mm. Woo. Didn't expect uh, that going in. There's. Uh, I'm going to bring up something that's a little bit off kilter, but I wonder if it might not be interesting, is that I was talking to somebody about this movie the other day, and it seems like a non-zero portion of audiences watching this movie, who knew there was going to be a villain twist because they were adults, thought that Tadashi was going to be the one who hmm. was stealing the microbots. And I don't think that would have worked with the story they're telling here, but it is interesting to me that ran like watching the movie you came up with something quite that extreme that would have been an interesting story in on its own right did i tell you my snoke theory i am not sure if you did i'm joking (laughs) 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 i was gonna say when did speed racer come out um yeah saw that again recently there's there's problems with speed racer uh oh i don't know 20 13? Well, no, I'm just thinking people could have gone in very prominently thinking, aha, brother disappears early in film. Clearly he's going to come back in some form. As the on. evil guy? Yeah. Spoilers for yeah. Speed Racer. Oh, way late. Like, no, no. 2008 <laughs> was uh, a Speed Racer. Mm. Mm. I am probably going to get to see that in cinemas soon, which is going to be an interesting experience. But uh... Yeah, there's. Uh, I, I used to really, really like that. There was this, there's this really sweet scene, which I loved, um, where... Um, the, the mum and, and Speed sit down and she's just, you know, talking to him about racing and she's just like, you just take my breath away. And it's so warm. And it's uh, Susan Sarandon, the woman who in 2016 said that Trump was basically the same as Hillary Clinton, so don't vote for Hillary. Instead, vote for Jill Stein, a crazy person who split the vote and ended up very much in pocket as a result. And um, <laughs> and it's, uh, what's his name? Emil Hirsch. Emil Hirsch, a guy who choked a woman in a club. And it's like, guys, could you stop choking women, please? Just like, just for a day. Just for a day. Don't choke any woman. And, and that scene is suddenly poisoned from two angles. And also they were mean to the chimp, apparently. <laughs> 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 so enjoy Speed Racer, folks. Anyway. I mean, it's one of the only Wachowski movies you're ever going to get, so if you're into that... Yeah. <laughs> I think... <laughs> if you're into chip cruelty. <laughs> what it comes down to is sometimes people make art which is better than they are. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. yep. That's I would nice say most of the yep. time. <laughs> and I do find the work of the Wachowskis valuable, even if I don't always love it. I'm sure they didn't directly punch the chimp in the face. Um, okay, so uh, one last question, and this was actually one that uh, Sharon um, had specifically noted uh, about, uh, but uh, what does the film seem to say about the way that the younger generation learns? Mm. Let's it, end on a high note. Yeah, it, it came across fairly early on, and then I kept seeing examples of it as it went along. But there's a, a theme of kids won't do what you tell them. What they will do is watch you and then learn what you do and replicate Mm. that. And it starts with when Hero goes to the bot fight, 
he deliberately imitates his opponent, the neck crick thing, which they make a joke of. Mm. So he's he's basically kind of imitating the big boys because that's the world that he wants to, in that moment, be a part of. And Although at that point he is also hustling, so he's kind of he a, doing is, it in an yeah. adorable way, like the kid in Jaws. Oh, I'm a big a boy. <laughs> kind of way. But but that's kind of the seed of it. And then when Tadashi rescues him and they run, he says something along the lines of, what were you thinking of, you knucklehead? Which Aunt Cass almost duplicates word for word when she grabs the two of them when they get back home. What were you two knuckleheads thinking of? So Tadashi is imitating Cass in terms of emulating the, the parental parent, role. Yeah. And Hiro, when he's at his best, is imitating Tadashi. And so you have examples like... I mean, you, you see it in the fact that Hiro completely ignores the lecture that Tadashi gives him. He completely ignores the consequences of what he's just done, which is that he got arrested and thrown in jail and had to be <laughs> bailed out, and immediately starts looking for another bot fight to go to. Now, obviously, this is a manifestation... In the same evening the as same he's night. been in yeah, the clink. Exactly. So, yes, this is a manifestation of the addictive behaviour that we were talking about, but it's also him going, I haven't learned a damn thing from any of that. <laughs> Marge, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> the best part was I didn't learn anything. So Tadashi responds to this in a really positive way. He works out that Hero needs to be exposed to more positive things around him, that if he's going to imitate something, he might as well imitate something good. And that's when he takes him to the robotics lab and he meets everybody and all the rest of it. And then later on you get the repeated line where when Tadashi runs into the college to rescue Callahan, someone has to help. That selfless motivator that's obviously a huge part of who Tadashi is and has, has led him to invent Baymax in the first place. And Hero mimics that line at the end when he goes into the portal to rescue Abigail. Someone has to help. And I'm just having a quick look for other examples of that. In the college scene also, it, it hits the point home that kids won't do what you tell them to or they won't learn just from being told something. But Callahan clearly understands that that's how kids work too because he pulls the classic reverse psychology, well, this is really hard and if you like things being easy and you like your bot fighting so much, you're clearly very good at that so there's no need for you to come here. Mm. Shtick, which... Hero immediately responds to. Indeed. Without realising that reverse psychology is being used on him. So he's clearly yeah. not quite that sharp just yet. But yeah, the other point where he imitates Tadashi is the look at, use your big brain and look at things from a different perspective, try a different angle, which he uses to inspire the whole group in the same way that Tadashi used it to inspire him. And that's his light bulb moment. That's when he kind of realises that his behaviour up to this point has been very un-Tadashi. Mm-hmm. Although I do feel like that moment would have worked better if we had more of Tadashi and the group's relationship so they could have recognised that kind of behaviour. But mm. again... yeah. Yeah. If he's the one who tends to give them the nudges to get to the places that they need to go. It seems to be the case, at least. Yeah. Any more to say? Uh, Dan, you've been quiet for a bit. 
I have like, y'all have been saying some very very good things that I have not <laughs> not much to add to, so I've been not wanting to step on it at all. So, uh, yeah. well, the, the, literally the only other thing I had, and it's not, it's so unimportant, but it's a it's more of like a little animation thing. Okay, the low powered drunk Baymax scene is <laughs> one that like it's it's funny. Like all the every physical comedy beat in it is funny. As an animator, that scene bothers me a good bit because oh. it's it's going for a kind of gag that isn't ba- like Baymax becomes a different character for a, for that scene like that. I look at that scene and I don't see low power Baymax or even drunk Baymax. I see like do a funny impression of a drunk guy. Like I see, yeah. And you, and you can cut this too, like because this isn't super important. But like just the. There's Baymax, as you see him before, was like, hello, do you need some help, sort of thing. And then as soon as he is low power, he is, like, getting way into, uh, like, Hero's personal space. We jumped out a window, sort of like, <laughs> just like, that does not feel like even how Baymax would be as a drunk character. I would, I think you could totally do that scene, having Baymax seeming drunkish and getting lots of comedy from that. But I think as an animator, like, going for just the quick and easy, it be, like, funny drunk guy is sort of a cliche. And mm. so... It's just as an animator, try to avoid those sorts of cliches when you can, and he, especially if it means compromising who the character is for that joke. His emotion also becomes a lot more fluid, which is interesting considering how precise he is. I think, at least on an animation point, he does move like he might when he's not thinking as hard about it. But yeah, his personality becomes really weird. Yeah, very quickly. But it is all still funny. Like credit, it is him. funny. It's still a really though. funny sequence. I mean, Harry Baby is a great, great line. So. <laughs> it is. I'd forgotten it, really it so when I mentioned we were doing Big Hero Six, someone uh, uh, tweeted at me, "Harry Baby," and I was like, "What? What? Uh, what? What are you talking about?" There, <laughs> it's the cat. Harry I get it now. It's the watching? cat. <laughs> In conclusion, it feels like the weaknesses of Big Hero Six serve to outline the strengths of the films around it: Frozen, Zootopia, Moana. Going back a little, Wreck-It Ralph and Tangled. It's a little bit of a dip, but you can't be the best version of yourself all the time. That's why this episode of School of Movies is not as good as the Frozen episode. But we do hope that you folks did get something out of it. School of Movies is kept going by you good, kind people supporting us on Patreon. And our customary special thank you to our top-tier patrons. Arigato gozaimasu. Joel Robinson. Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Connor Kennedy, Brian Novak, David Sheely, Kevin Vahey, Daniel Salguero, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner, Johan Clayson, Tyler Long, Joe Gesiger, Greg Downing, Tim Rosinski, Christopher Wolfe, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Luksh, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dashler, and Lorraine Chisholm. After we'd wrapped this show, I ended up watching Overly Sarcastic Productions and their Trope Talk episode on robots, and there was a fascinating bit about Baymax in there. So I'm going to include that now because A, it's worth listening to, and B, 
I don't think I mention overly sarcastic productions enough. They are fantastic. Check them out on YouTube. So, remember Big Hero 6? The charming story of a boy and his marshmallow robot learning to be superheroes as they navigate the agonizingly realistic journey of the intense depression and grief our hero experiences after the gut-wrenchingly tragic death of his older brother and truest friend? It was a bit of a roller coaster, but most notably, it is the only story I've ever seen with a genuinely lovable robotic protagonist that had precisely zero human qualities. Baymax is a robot. Specifically, he's a healthcare companion. He's programmed to keep his patients happy and healthy, and that is literally all he does. It just so happens that the only thing that can pull our protagonist out of his deep depression is bombastic superheroics and maybe revenge. So Baymax obliges, helping Hero do superhero things and track down the supervillain who indirectly killed his brother, and while this is a deeply emotionally loaded subject matter for Hero, Baymax is just there to keep him healthy. And at no point does Baymax deviate from his programming. There's even a part where the movie goes out of its way to show us that Baymax is completely controlled by whatever chip he has installed at the time. When Hero finds the guy who killed his brother, he orders Baymax to kill him, well, destroy him, it is a Disney movie, and when Baymax mildly protests that his healthcare programming prevents him from harming anyone, Hero removes his healthcare chip, leaving only his radical kung fu fighting chip. This leads to a hulked out Baymax silently terminatoring his way after the villain, chucking Hero's friends around like ragdolls whenever they try and stop him because he's pure programming. No fighting from the inside for Baymax, he just does what he's programmed to. He doesn't even seem upset once they reinsert his chip, he just wants to make sure nobody's injured from his Hulk out session. This is not a robot capable of overriding his programming through the power of friendship. What's interesting is, throughout the movie, Baymax says a few things that other characters interpret to be metaphorical and deep that are actually totally literal. There are two main instances, both spoilers. Tadashi is here, and I will always be with you. At a few different points in the movie, when Hiro is grieving the loss of his brother Tadashi, Baymax evenly replies with, Tadashi is here. Hiro angrily blows up at him the first time he says this because he's been hearing people say, oh, he's not really gone as long as we remember him for weeks now, and it doesn't make him feel any better because it doesn't make Tadashi any less dead. But Baymax Max obviously doesn't mean that. What he means is, he actually has a large repository of video footage from the many trial runs Tadashi did trying to get Baymax working, all footage of Tadashi encouragedly talking into the camera, persisting through setback after setback, and delightedly telling Baymax, and Hiro through Baymax, that they're gonna help so many people. From a certain point of view, Tadashi is here, because he has all this footage of Tadashi being his regular Paragon Optimist self. Baymax isn't being comforting or metaphysical, he's just being literal. And at the end of the movie, Baymax is winding up for a heroic sacrifice, and Hiro is freaking out and begging him not to go. Baymax, in his unwaveringly calm voice, tells Hero, I will always be with you. Hero accepts what's happening, hugs him, and Baymax does the heroic sacrifice thing. But where one is meant to assume Baymax is implying he'll, like, be with him in spirit or in his heart or whatever, what he actually means is, I put a copy of my chip in my rocket glove I'm using to get you out of here, so once you get to safety, you can just build me another body. Once again, we're encouraged to read a level of metaphor and poetry into Baymax's words where, in actuality, he's a brutally literal robot and he never stops being that. Baymax is a completely in human robot who unwaveringly follows his program and never does anything outside his parameters. But because his programming is keep people healthy and safe, his voice is calm and soothing, and his design is non-threatening and huggable, he's a very lovable character despite his total lack of humanity. He doesn't learn how to be compassionate or move beyond the boundaries of his programming, he just is. That said, I do think a lot of how well-received the character was is his voice. I don't know how well-received he'd have been if he sounded like an actual robot. Hero. I will always be with you. Yeah, not as into it. 
Anyway, Baymax's gentle inhumanity is meant to highlight the emotionally fraught humanity of Hero, and to a lesser extent the rest of the cast. Baymax is lovable in large part because Hero loves him. His stability and single-minded drive to help is exactly what Hero needs to heal. He's a sweet, gentle character who gets a lot of laughs, a lot of tears, and a lot of aww, that's sweet, without ever coming across as anything but a very well-programmed robot nurse. But I think Baymax works so well because he's contrasted by the very human Hero. And speaking of contrast, let's talk about the other adorable tearjerker robot protagonist of the decade, Wally. And if you want to hear Red talk about Wally, go to YouTube, find Trope Talk Robots, and then smash that subscribe button, because overly sarcastic productions are worth your time. And while they might sound overly sarcastic, they cram an inordinate amount of insight into extremely entertaining presentations. I particularly love their HP Lovecraft one. Anyway, I especially wanted to put that in there because I felt like we weren't doing Big Hero 6 justice enough with this show. You know, you kind of you finish an episode and you're like, eh... We didn't love it, but the reason we did this is because we have to do all the Disneys. And not every one of them can be Frozen. Or indeed, Moana, coming next week. All right. Excellent. Okay. So I think that will do it for Big Hero 6. And Dan, where can listeners find your work? They can find me on one of two YouTube channels. Uh, New Frame Plus, which is a series about uh, video game animation. And uh, another channel called Playframe, which is me and Carrie mostly just playing games kind of for, in a more relaxed and fun way. What games specifically have you been playing recently that people could tune in for? A lot of Kingdom Hearts has been for, <laughs> for one. But I also tend to play a lot of uh, Dark Souls games. Carrie and I have been playing just more chill stuff like uh, uh, Stardew Valley. We've played through story things like uh, Night in the Woods. We've been covering a pretty wide variety, actually. So it's, uh, it's been a good time, though. And Mackenzie, where can people hear you? All right. Uh, my podcast is The Rainbow Connection. We talk about Jim Henson and the Muppets, and that's where you find podcasts. And uh, we're on Twitter at MuppetsPod or my personal Twitter at Kenzie Phoenix. And uh, yeah, that's what we're doing. The next episode is going to be about the 2015 Muppets show that everybody hated. I'm going to have to tune in for that one because uh, I've never... I, I sat down and watched a little bit of it uh, that I found a clip uh, on YouTube. And it, you know, I'd, I'd only just found out this was from the showrunner of Big Bang Theory. And I went, oh. Yes, the first half is from the showrunner of the Big Bang Theory. The second half, they got a different showrunner. Uh-huh. And we don't go that far into it, but oh. it's it's going to be a multi-parter in the long run. It's, okay. it's interesting. Uh, yeah, but I should probably go attempt to animate a bouncing ball now because that's what i have to do with my time you just did interesting again (laughs) party foul okay uh well (laughs) and we are going to leave you with immortal by the fallout boy who i believe reached the peak of their popularity in 2014 question mark (laughs) i don't know it was really big when i was in high school yeah and we're going to release the zootopia podcast uh, immediately before we put out the Moana show. So uh, if you've not heard that one before, folks, you've got that to listen to as well. So technically you get double prizes next week. So this is 2005's The Fallout Boy with Immortals, and I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out.
Cause we could be